It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Good evening, friends. Welcome to Cadillac On Call, presented by Cadillac Foundation. Each week, we are here to address the latest health and medical news in our community. And for the past nine months, much of that time has been devoted to the COVID-19 pandemic. As the calendar turns into December, that will again be our focus this evening as we endure a dangerous period with the virus, rapidly rising case counts, increased deaths and hospitalizations. Later in our program, we'll share some information of a new program underway at Cadillac to provide connections to members of our community to vital health and social services, plus learn about the great work of the Cadillac Foundation, an incredible organization served by generous donors and volunteers to improve the health of our community. A lot to cover this evening, so let's get right to it with the Communicable Disease Program Manager with the Benton Franklin Health District, Heather Hill. And good evening, Heather. I know we begin with a sobering milestone, if you will. I think the numbers are now over 15,000 cases uh, in the pandemic in the two-county area since it began, and we have surpassed 200 deaths in those two-county areas. And the numbers just continue to be very high. I I guess, what can you tell us? What's the the latest from the, the public health perspective? Yeah, unfortunately, you're exactly right, Jim. Uh, we're seeing rates definitely uh, heading the wrong way. We haven't seen positive uh, test results at this level since midsummer, and actually we're surpassing a lot of what we saw happening in the summer and, and certainly have reached those milestones of, you know, over right, 15,000 positives for our bi-county region, and that's, that's a lot of infection and, and, and right at 200 deaths. So it's, it's, it has us very concerned. Um, you know, we were concerned about what was happening after Halloween, and we've seen kind of a spike after that, and that has run into the Thanksgiving holiday, and we're certainly starting to see uh, the effects of all of the gatherings causing our case rates to go up. Our testing site, they're also very, very busy, which is good. We're glad to see that people are out getting tested, and we're seeing actually record-breaking numbers of people going to our test sites. Our uh, CBC West site had a high of over 900 testing on one day, and that is a lot of people getting tested. I think it's important that people do go ahead and get tested and find out what's their status. Uh, are they infected? Are they infectious? And we find sometimes that's what helps people to, to do what's right, and that's to stay at home and not expose others. I know one of the, the key pieces of advice we've been talking about for months now is, you know, the masks, the, the social distancing, and the limited in the size of the gatherings. The masking seems to be working uh, the social distancing, maybe a little bit, uh, but it's the gatherings causing most of the troubles right now? Right. Where we're seeing, you know, through our contact tracers doing the interviews with the index cases and where they've been and who they've been around and then communicating with those people they had close contact with, um, really it's those gatherings in, in the personal life environment. At schools, people are wearing their masks out in the businesses, when you go into the grocery store or the hardware store, we're certainly seeing very, very high rates of mask wearing. 
But it's as soon as people head into that private life, we let our guard down and start to make those mistakes that actually put us at risk for ending up infected. And there's an unfortunate attitude that, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy, it's okay if I get infected, it's, it's not going to be devastating for me. But there's always the potential that you'll expose somebody and infect them that the outcome will be devastating, and you may not even realize you infected somebody else. Uh, It's that important that we all work together to to stop the spread in our community and start seeing the data go a different direction. Over the course of the summer, back in August, early September, when after the mask mandates and some of these real emphases were, were being made, we saw the decline in case numbers, obviously, as well, the decline in the number of deaths. And most recently, even as the numbers started to climb back up a little bit in the month of October, the deaths stayed fairly low. But I think it was just today there were five deaths reported. And, and if my memory serves correctly, most of those were folks in the older age populations, correct? That's correct. Um, Most of our deaths are in that elderly population with underlying conditions, but we also recently had to unfortunately announce that that there was an adolescent death in our community related to COVID, and it's the third one in in the state of Washington to have an adolescent die. And I think that's just another reminder to us that it doesn't matter what age you are, if you have underlying health conditions, which was certainly the situation in, in, in this circumstance, it doesn't matter what age you are. If you have underlying health conditions and you catch COVID, it can certainly be very, very devastating. And that was a, a very sobering statistic for us to see happen in our community when a, a young life is lost because of COVID. That's, that's very sad. That's very devastating. And I think it, it it needs to be that reminder to all of us. And, of course, there's the concern, well, what's the risk to our, our school age students? And, yes, a person of school age was infected and did die, but that we don't luckily see very often at all. Um, there's just circumstances that led this to a very bad outcome. On that topic of schools, before we take our first break with you, um, I know the challenge that the schools are facing, from what I understand, is similar to what the hospitals and the healthcare facilities are facing, and that is is being able to staff their facilities to to meet the needs. Right. We look very closely at what is happening as far as outbreaks, um, not only in our schools, but across our community. And right now, we're following about 48 active outbreaks. But when we look at the school, we're only following two school outbreaks. And in those schools, it's not classroom-related. It's people who work together, say, in an office or an administrative area. And so what we're honestly seeing right now is people, once again, are catching COVID in their private life, but they happen to work at a school, and therefore there's the potential that they expose, say, the classroom. And so because of that exposure risk, then the classroom has to close down for that 14-day quarantine. There's also the concern with the more staff we have out because they got exposed or got infected in their personal life, schools are beginning to feel the stress of of staff shortages, just like we're hearing the same out of the hospitals. Hospital bed capacity isn't stressed right now. 
ventilator status isn't stressed right now, but it's staffing. It's, it's people catching it in their private life, and now I can't go to work. So here we go. One minute before we take this break, if you would, we, we it, it all boils back down to this message. If you want to keep the schools open, if you want the businesses to be able to op- open, especially at this time of the year, uh, we're seeing it. We're right in the middle of it. We, we, we have to do our part. Right. And, you know, masking isn't really about controlling people. You need to look at it as masking is about cro- controlling an infection. We're cro- controlling a virus. And we're trying to keep control of it so that we can get back to a little bit more life as normal. We're visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. We have one more segment of Heather's time to share with us. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the vaccines that are on the horizon, maybe some promising news in that regard. We'll do that after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Continuing our discussion with Heather Hill from the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, if we could, let's maybe move into the subject of vaccines. And I know at Cadillac it's interesting that we're seeing, obviously, the, the work that's gone on around the clock taking care of a rising number of COVID hospitalized patients. But there's also a fair amount of work going on, I know, in our world on preparing for the vaccines when they arrive. And what can you share from a public health standpoint on what you know and when we might start to see the vaccinations and how that all unfolds? Jim, we are uh, working with the Washington State Department of Health, having regular meetings, um, staying on top of exactly what kind of information is coming out of the Center for Disease Control so that we have our plan in place and we're ready to roll with this vaccine in our community as soon as it arrives. What we know now is um, the CDC advisory committee did approve phase 1a of the vaccine allocation framework and what that means is we expect to see things start to roll out vaccines start to roll out to our communities as soon as it's available but we also realize that Washington state is expected to get about 62,000 doses in the first allocation and those doses are supposed to go out to a very select population first. And that's going to be our frontline hospital workers, which includes anybody who works in a hospital, not just the nurses, the doctors, but all the other ancillary staff that, that are putting themselves at risk being in an acute care facility. And uh, the other group that will have... Um, be offered this vaccine first is our our EMT and paramedic, our EMS community. We know that they're working in a very high-risk environment, taking care of us in emergency situations, so they are in the first phase. And then the last group in the first phase are our residents of our long-term care facilities. Throughout this pandemic, we've seen just how high-risk they are living in a communal setting, they majority, the vast majority, have underlying health conditions, and so they will be offered the vaccine in that early phase. Then once vaccine 
supply starts to pick up, then it will move into some of the other categories. And finally, by, again, we're still thinking spring to early summer, that it will be available for the general public. Uh, so we, we're seeing vaccine really close, and it's in sight, but we can't let our guard down and just wait for the vaccine to arrive because it's not going to come in great enough numbers that anybody who wants it can have it. That's why we still need to keep those other tools in our toolbox, and that's wearing masks, social distancing, and washing hands. And if we could, I, I was going to touch on that point. You said it's prioritized based on those closest and most at risk, the first responder community, the frontline healthcare workers, and, and the long-term health community. So obviously it's a limited supply. And the other complicating factor is these are two-dose vaccines, correct? Right. That, that's absolutely correct. The Pfizer vaccine is a, a two-dose roughly three weeks apart. And the Moderna is going to be about four weeks you can get your second dose. And so as we're rolling vaccine out into the community, people need to keep in mind which vaccine you had because when you get your second dose, you have to get the exact same product. You can't interchange these. So that will be a little bit of a challenge. And there's also some storage concerns where the Pfizer uh, requires that super cold environment. And so it won't be able to go to a lot of places because they don't have that super cold freezer capabilities. So there's some limitations there as well. And what you're saying is the fact that because it's being rolled out in limited supply to begin with, the the general public, our listening audience for the most part, most likely wouldn't be on that that priority list till probably or second quarter, perhaps uh, third quarter of, of 2021? Yeah, that, that's correct. As more vaccine is made available, then we'll be able to phase in other people within our community. You know, right now we're also doing a lot of work to put um, the groundwork in place for how to actually get vaccine into a large number of people when the vaccine arrives and we're able to. So we've been working with many of the partners that we've talked with, had agreements with, have worked with over the years in anticipation of possibly needing to do mass vaccination clinics or getting a large number of our population vaccinated very quickly. So we're pulling all those plans out of, you know, the closet that we've been working on for years and years and actually now realizing they're going to uh, come into effect. We are going to be rolling out these plans we've worked on for years and put it into practice in our community as soon as this vaccine um, arrives. On a very small scale, I know the little uh, vaccination clinic we did for flu shots earlier in the fall was maybe a little bit of a dry run on what that might look like. That's true because (laughs) a lot of the planning is how to get people safely through a clinic, and oftentimes that's that's a drive-through. That's try to plan a way to have as little contact with people because we we have COVID swirling around and we need to be very careful that as we're vaccinating people, we're not bringing them into enclosed environments where there's lots of people and they get exposed to COVID while they're waiting to get their vaccine. So we have to really consider the safety of, of the people that will be attending these clinics. And we've 
come up with um, many creative ways to make sure this happens in our community. We need to finish with where we began, and we're in a very precarious time right now. And I, I heard some some comments from the national level at the CDC and some of our public health officials at the national level with obviously we're just coming out of Thanksgiving, so we're probably going to see numbers go up in the next few weeks and then right on the heels of that, the Christmas season. That has us very concerned. If uh, what happened after Thanksgiving or after Halloween is any indication of what's likely to happen after Thanksgiving, we, we certainly have concerns, and I know our acute care facilities are watching their their staffing level and their bed space very carefully, anticipating the possibility that there could be a, a sudden surge of ill people needing um, immediate care. And it, you know, it doesn't just stress, having this high rate in the community doesn't just stress our acute care system. It certainly is stressing the public health system here at, at our, my home base here at Benton Franklin Health District. It, it, it's been um, an amazing thing to watch this many people pulling together to help the community, but it's also stressing our public health infrastructure and we're realizing many of the data collection um, software and places we usually report things are not able to handle the large number of pieces of data we're trying to put into it. So the sheer volume of what's happening in our community isn't just, it's not just hard on our schools, our hospitals, but it's also hard on the public health infrastructure. I know it's hard on our EMS providers who are out there on the front lines. So we just are really asking the community to do everything they can to help decrease the rate because it's affecting many, many pockets of our community. And we would rather go into the holidays looking a little brighter with regards to case rate instead of seeing them go quite so high. If you would maybe take the final minute and and relative to testing, if people do want to travel, insist on traveling, should they be getting tested before they travel, when they get back? What what can you share with that and maybe just a concluding comment as we uh, conclude our sure. conversation? You know, there are many places that do require testing before travel, so you want to look into where you're going and what the requirements are. And if you're concerned once you get back, should I test? We really look at that kind of five to seven day mark after the potential exposure as a good time to consider getting tested. But you have to understand that's only a snapshot of that moment, and you still need to be very vigilant for any kind of symptoms that show up. So testing is certainly uh, not ill-advised, but it's not foolproof. And, And I guess the concluding message goes back to that is, is if you can do all of those things that we've been talking about for months now. Absolutely. You know, wash your hands, wear your face covering, social distance. And, yeah, testing is another one of those tools in our toolkit. And we need to use all of those tools that we have to actually see our case rates start to go down. Heather Hill of the Benton Franklin Health District, as always, thank you so much for your time. Continued uh, best wishes to you and the team and all first responders and health care providers throughout the Tri-Cities area and Benton Franklin counties. We'll be back with the second half of Cadillac on Call right after this.
listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program. If the COVID pandemic has taught us anything, it's how to be ingenious, how to be creative, and how to think of different ways of communicating and connecting with people, especially when it involves healthcare services and social services. And Cadillac Regional Medical Center and Cadillac Health System, in partnership with its Providence partners around the Western United States and the Northwest, have are launching a new program called the Community Resource Desk. And ultimately, when we're outside of the COVID situation, it would be an in-person opportunity to, for folks to get this kind of assistance. Uh, but for now, it's going to be verse, over the phone with some trained experts on where you can go should you need various kinds of social service help. So we're happy to have with us tonight Karen Hayes, who is the manager of Community Health Programs, to share a little bit more about this and how people in their current situation that we're facing, if they need to or want to access uh, places to, to, to find out some help, they can uh, do that. So, Karen, first of all, thanks for taking the time. Maybe just an introductory comment of what the intent of this community resource desk is and what is the goal? So the intent of the community resource desk is really to provide community members with resources in areas of connecting them with resources in areas of housing, transportation, maybe connecting them with a primary care provider or um, helping them identify what food banks are open at what times, that sort of thing. So it's really broadening uh, the resources beyond health care into what we call social determinants of health. And with that, I know there are some staff members that are already at work doing this. And uh, tell us a little bit about their expertise and what they bring to this this uh, this outreach effort. Yeah, it's really exciting. This is a joint effort between ambulatory care management and our community health staff. And uh, we have two care management coordinators who have a background in medical assisting. We have one resource specialist who has a, a history of working with social services, especially in the area of housing. And our community health assistant who has lots of experience at Catholic Neurological Resource Center providing resources for people with um, chronic illnesses and for caregiving and a variety of other resources. So they really have uh, phenomenal backgrounds, and two of them, Yesenia and Judy, are also bilingual in Spanish. So that's a really, um, really nice to have that service available as well in Spanish. And I know it's being classified as a pilot program. It began in October, as I understand it. What do you find or what do you think are we seeing as the, the biggest areas of need or what people are really looking for that, that are accessing this desk? Well, so far, it has been a variety of things. It's been help with transportation and getting connected to um, behavioral health providers or getting established and into a primary care provider and things like that. 
And I know Cadillac is part of the Providence system of, of health facilities around the Western United States. And this, as I understand, piloted and, and, and modeled after one that was that is in, in play down in the Oregon region of Providence? Yes, they actually have seven in the Portland area. And their model is a little bit different in that they partner with social service organizations who um, have desks in Providence um, medical uh, clinics, and then they partner with social service agencies to provide the resources. And so our model is a little bit different in that we're utilizing some of our current staff who are also working other jobs and also um, answering these calls and requests for service at the same time. Given our COVID world, what is the easiest way for people to access this service? So the easiest way is by phone. So calling 509-942-2956. And so they can call that during normal weekday business hours, is that correct? Yes, Monday through Friday, 8 to 4. So that number is 509-942-2956. And I know once we hopefully at some point get back to somewhat more of a normal life when, when, when it's able to be operated in person. What is the vision of that, Karen? Well, the vision there is that community members can come into Cadillac Healthplex, which is at 1268 Lee Boulevard, and just walk into the Cadillac Neurological Resource Library desk that's already there and that's really going to serve as the community resource desk as well. And it's really an expansion of the resources that we have uh, been providing. And then ultimately, depending on when restrictions are lifted, there hopefully will be an on-site at uh, the medical center as well. So the, there would be, in essence, an outpatient location and an inpatient location within the hospital campus. Right, and we really like to think of these resource desks as being available for all community members, including patients. And as you mentioned, the fact that we have a very diverse culture that lives here, and and Yesenia and Judy are are both uh, fluent in Spanish, that adds that different element or that additional element of of being able to connect to more people. Yes, I'm really excited about that. It's really going to help us to, to reach people who really um, do need to be connected with these resources. As we move through the winter season, certainly the temperature is colder and, and it's a time where obviously people that are in need, whether they're homeless or or they, they may have uh, situations where they don't have transportation uh, and issues. Do you think that over the, the timing of this might be uh, pretty darn good right now going into the winter season? And uh, certainly it'll be the value of that service will be even more magnified. I do. I think it's really an ideal time um, because people are in need in so many areas, like you mentioned, housing, transportation, food, uh, just so many areas of need, medical, of course. Um, And so it's um, really a wonderful time to be able to provide that extra level of resource in our community. And if you would like to learn more about the community resource desk that has been unveiled here in the Tri-Cities at Cadillac, 
Uh, you can call 509-942-2956. And, of course, Karen is part of a larger community health programs division of Cadillac that provides some wonderful services. A few weeks ago, I know we visited on the, the support groups that are available um, uh, in a variety of areas. And so uh, I guess maybe just one final comment about the importance of people taking advantage of these community health opportunities here in the community. You know, we're just so lucky to be able to have as many programs as we do that can help our community. I mean, it's really about providing the resources that are needed and the information that is really helpful and also that extra level of support that you can get from the new community resource desk, from Catholic Neurological Resource Center, from our Healthy Ages program. We are here to help. And it's a great segue into our last segment as we're going to be visiting with Rebecca Thornton with the Catholic Foundation because a lot of these services are provided at no cost to community residents and they're funded through generous donations to Catholic's Foundation. So, Karen Hayes, thank you so much for taking the time. Again, that number for the Community Resource Desk at Catholic, 509-942-2956. Back with our remaining minutes of Catholic on Call in just a minute. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. The amazing healthcare workers at Catholic facilities around the Tri Cities are ably supported by some amazing volunteers, both generous in their gifts of time as well as their gifts of financial support. And so we wanted to conclude our program tonight giving a few minutes to uh, representatives from Catholic's Foundation. And we're with Rebecca Thornton, who is the uh, manager of foundation development at Catholic. And and I wanted Rebecca to come on and talk a little bit about as we're ending that kind of the end of the year and certainly with the COVID pandemic, the, the, the way the community has responded has just been so gratifying. But I know even in the giving level from financial resources, it's been quite gratifying as well. Talk a little bit about that, if you would, Rebecca. Hi, Jim. Sure. Um, yeah, I think it's it's always a good time um, to give. And at the end of the year, you know, we know that folks are uh, looking for opportunities to um, to make gifts that can count. Basically, if you if you're looking for um, some tax in- incentives to do that, and um, we encourage you to always talk to your own tax professionals when you're kind of figuring these things out. But um, the federal government did sort of make it um, even more desirable to give um, directly to charitable organizations um, through the CARES Act in 2020. So we're really encouraging um, our folks in the community and, and those that support Cadillac and healthcare uh, in the community to kind of look at what um, some of those incentives might be for the end of the year. So it's really um, it's really exciting. It's kind of the perfect storm of opportunity with everything that's um, gone on, obviously, with COVID and the increased needs of our of our medical um, system overall, and then now these opportunities for donors to really get the most bang for their buck in their contribution for 2020. And if folks were interested in contributing to Catholic's Foundation, um, it's th- there's a lot of different ways they can they can do it in a I guess an indirect fashion as far as where it goes into a general fund, or there are there are various if if they want to allocate it or dedicate it to a specific reason, uh, they can do that too, right? So there are options. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so this year we really have, as you said, focused on our unrestricted fund, which is really um, benefits the area of greatest need, which we've seen obviously this year um, really allows us to be uh prepared as an organization to be the most relevant that we can be and to kind of pivot in whatever direction that we need to to support um, our community. Um, but we absolutely appreciate um, donors that are interested in giving directly to the areas that they feel most passionately about. Um, um, obviously, some of the most um, well-known and kind of um, uh, best supported funds, I guess you could say, as far as um, donors' interest and, and, and dedication are certainly our pediatric funds that support our pediatric champions and NICU, um, as well as our oncology and mammography uh, screening funds um, and our scholarship fund. So we really um, want to work with our, our donors in our community to figure out what the best fit for, for them is. You know, how do, we, how do we create opportunities for you to really connect with your passion as a donor and, and make investments and impact where you, where you really want to see it? And you touched on, obviously, the true nature is is the gift of giving and is so appreciated, but there are also financial benefits to people when they do give in certain ways. Get a little more detail on that, and I want you to talk a little bit about what's called K-Life. Sure. Uh, K-Life is a great um, pooled income fund program that we have at Cadillac. Um, pooled income funds have been around for a long time and have been used by foundations and charitable organizations as a way to... Uh, to give donors essentially a giving product that they can participate in. Um, essentially, uh, to sum it up, the foundation um, Cadillac o- Foundation owns a building essentially, and our donors that contribute to the pooled income fund um, become investors in that in that property and receive um, a six point four percent right now um, uh, a portion of that back every year. So basically. And if you contribute at least $10,000 to the pooled income fund, um, it can provide you with significantly more current income, part of which, part of which is tax-free, uh, potential tax savings for your contribution. And also it gives the opportunity for the medical center to be able to use the money right away. So um, essentially to can kind of compare it to some other things, and again, I am not a tax professional, so I really <laughs> encourage folks to reach out to their financial advisors and tax professionals for more of the technical information. But basically, if you have a maturing CD or other kind of lump sum when that you'd want to receive a larger, um, a larger percentage or, or interest back from, um, if you contribute part of that to the K, to K Life, as I said, it um, it pays you back an annual minimum of 6.4 percent to the amount contributed. Um, there's also inflation protection in that um, because each year um, the amount paid out will increase by a CPI adjustment of up to 1.5 percent. Um, another further benefit is that 20 percent, approximately 20 percent of the income received from K-Life will be tax-free. So um, if you are looking to give um, a $10,000 gift or more, if you can do that, or an end or over 60, you can give to K-Life, and that provides you some income back. And it's it's an awesome opportunity as well, because just like any other gift to the foundation, you're able to designate that where you um, kind of feel most drawn to in, in our programming. Um, these can also be gifts of appreciated stock. It can be gifts of property. So there's lots of options with K-Life, and we've got a great CPA who can help um, to work through that as well if, if you have more questions. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really a fantastic opportunity um, to generate income, not only for you, but um, also 
uh, for members of your family. As long as that person is 60 or older, um, you can actually have other beneficiaries as um, in that program that can receive the income from that. So if you have children, um, obviously your spouse, um, that will continue to give uh, for, the, for the life of that agreement, essentially. So it's the K-Life Pooled Income Fund. And if you'd like more information, you can visit Cadillac.org slash foundation or call 509-942-2661. If you would, Rebecca, I'd just like you to take maybe 30 seconds to, from a giving standpoint, from what you have seen in your role with the uh, foundation at Cadillac, what is your perspective that you've witnessed this during this pandemic, I guess, that that maybe people can latch on to and, and real realize that we're in a wonderful community? Wow, Jim. Yeah, 30 seconds is tough because there's so many examples. But Where do we begin? Yeah, I, yeah, right. I mean, I think that really it just, it's it's a reminder to us all that health is this great equalizer. Um, everybody will need the healthcare system at some point in their lives, some of us sooner than others, and some of us for very unex- in unexpected ways. And so um, it is so critical to to make those investments and and to to pay it forward in that way. And I think we've really seen so many incredible examples of our community just coming in and stepping up and saying, you know, we can respond to a crisis and we want to make sure that all of our neighbors feel supported. And we've just seen that through, as you've said, gifts of time, of treasure and of talent. Um, and we continue to see that um, to all the time. So we've got a great we've got a great vantage point at the foundation to have really seen the best possible uh, parts of people this year. Well, very well said. Rebecca, thank you for taking the time with us. Again, if you'd like more information on the K-Life Fund or anything relative to the Cadillac Foundation, visit cadillac.org slash foundation. Again, thanks to all of our guests that have joined us this evening. And a reminder to please be healthy and, and stay safe and follow all those public health measures that we've been reminding you of consistently. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again next week.